the chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Okay, are we there? Are we there? I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on. Wow, there's lots of you here. Wow, what a lot of people. Firstly, can I say to you, uh, a number of you were here this morning, and it's lovely that you've come back this evening. It does mean some of you are here in the same sermon. Can I say to you, at 11.15, Fran, uh, Sam, I've done it myself, <laughs> Sam preached on this same passage, and she was storming. And I've asked her to print out her sermon, because it may not have been uh, uh, um, uh, recorded. She's got 25 copies, but can I encourage you, especially if you, this is the second time you've heard me, take this away and grab it, because uh, what Sam has to say is perfect for uh, us as a church as we go into David's nodding vigorously. I thought it was brilliant. I nearly said to her, just do tonight. I'm going to ditch mine. But uh, uh, she was doing a lot earlier, so uh, I've uh, taken this passage on as well. Let's pray together. Loving Father, please would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word this evening. Then by your Holy Spirit, please melt our hearts and motivate our wills that we might live in humble obedience to all that we read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was wondering about whether it was right to apply for the role of Archdeacon of Bath and leave this church that I love so much, and obviously Fran does as well, I had a profound moment. I was walking along Wild Oak Lane towards this building, towards my office, and just I was just up to the church, and all sorts of things were going from my mind about the job. And I suddenly had a really strong image. If you've not been in the church, there are two lists of vicars, past vicars of this church, on the back wall that I get to look at every week when I'm at the front. And I felt as if God said very clearly to me, 
There have been many vicars before you, and there will be many vicars after you. You play just a very small part in all I have done and all I will do in this place over many hundreds of years. It is time to move on, to hand the baton on to someone else. It was a decisive moment for me. And handing on the baton, as we've already heard, is vital in leadership. This is a moment when many batons are being handed on. Today, Katie, also Katie Partridge, is handing on the baton to Megan. Megan starts her role today as our new intern, and we welcomed her at our service this morning as Katie heads off to Oxford to start her ordination training. Next week, Ruth will pick up the baton from Fran. It's tough. It must be very tough to have to sit and listen to people talking about your predecessor. And I want to say to you, Ruth, we believe in you. We absolutely believe in you and that God has got great things to do through you in this church. And well done for being here because that's a tough gig. And we believe in you as well, Matt. But we're not paying you. <laughs> and, then, so, uh, uh, and of course, Fran starts her ordination training in Plymouth, but still here. Can I remind you, she's still going to be here. She ain't going anywhere for a year. And then in October, I will go and I'll hand on the baton to, to who will I hand that baton on to? Who? No, you do. It's you. It's all of you. Uh, you do not go into suspended animation when I walk out the door. You will continue and you will continue to grow and I will hand on the baton to you and then at some point someone will come and join you. Handing on the baton is so key in all Christian ministry. And it's the theme of 2 Timothy, which we've chosen to preach on this term. The Apostle Paul is handing on the baton to Timothy. But the context is telling because Paul is not about to go off and do some ordination training in some lovely city in the middle of the country. Or go down to Plymouth. No, Paul is in Rome. He's experiencing tough times in prison, probably his second imprisonment. Many think he's in the maritime prison in Rome. If so, he'd have been in a dungeon cell with just a single hole in the roof for light and air. Paul's just had a court hearing. He alludes to it at the end of the letter. The outcome is that he is soon to be executed. His ministry and life is about to come to an end, an abrupt end. He's in the final weeks or maybe even just the final days of his life. And they are tough. He's isolated and very lonely. There is only one person who has stuck with him, and that is Luke, we're told. Everyone else, all his fellow Christians, all his fellow Christian leaders have abandoned him. We're told that Demas has abandoned him because he loves the present world. In, one, in chapter 1, verse 15, we read that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted him. When he was in court facing trial, we read in chapter 4, verse 16, no one supported him, no one spoke up for him when he was on trial. Indeed, some of those Christian leaders are now actively seeking to make life harder for Paul. He mentions Alexander, the metal worker, in chapter 4 and verse 14. This is tough. And the conditions he's under are tough. He is lonely and cold. At the end of the letter, he asked that Timothy would come quickly and bring John Mark and also bring a warm cloak. He's freezing and he's lonely 
and probably very hungry. And he's about to be executed, to feel the executioner's sword on his neck any day now. It's also the time when Emperor Nero was around. And uh, there was terrible persecution of Christians. Nero burnt down Rome, but uh, the Christians were blamed. And Paul was caught up in all of that. It is tough being Paul right now. And it is tough being Timothy right now too. He's pastoring a church in Ephesus. Yet despite all the instructions that Paul has sent Timothy and that church in his first letter, there is still trouble. It is still a church riddled with heresy. Hymenaeus, for example, who had been excommunicated because of heresy, is still influencing the church. We know that many are looking down on Timothy. They're not respecting his leadership. And Paul is desperate to see Timothy. Partly, I think, because of his own needs. He speaks here of uh, 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 longing to see you, that I may be filled with joy. He wants to feel the joy of a friend. But I think also the joy of being able to encourage, to encourage Timothy. We have no idea if Timothy will get there before he's executed. Uh, My guess is he wrote this letter wondering and perhaps even getting a sense that maybe Timothy wouldn't make it before the day came. We just don't know. But this letter has a feel of a very personal letter. It feels like Paul's last words, a last will and testament. It's the passion and urgency at the end of his life, of an older leader addressing a younger leader, his successor. And his main message, the message for Timothy, is that Timothy would persevere in the gospel. And to enable this young, shy, timid, weak man to step up and fill those huge apostolic sandals. We'll hear Paul telling Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God, to guard the good deposit, to preach the words. It's intensely personal, but it is also universal. At a time like this in our church, when there is so much transition and change going on, when batons are being passed left, right and center, that we listen to the teaching, that we listen to what is being said as we become the people who have to take that baton on to the next stage. And today I want just to note two things really as we begin this letter. Firstly, Paul looks back, and then Paul looks forward. Firstly, he looks back, and he looks back on his own life, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. I find that extraordinary, that Paul has the ability at the very end of his life to look back and say with all integrity that he has a clear conscience. That's an extraordinary thing to be able to do, isn't it? To look back. Across his life, feel no guilt, no regrets, no if-onlys. And you may say, well, how comes? Is it that he's just supremely arrogant? I don't think it is. Because actually, it wasn't always the case. Paul has a past, and there are people here who have a past. Some of you would be happy to share that past, and my guess is some of you will have a past you prefer not to be broadcast from the fronts of this church. But Paul had a past that we all know about, a pre-Christian life, where Paul actively and single-mindedly persecuted and killed Christians. He hated the church. He hated Jesus, Jesus with a passion. But then one day, the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him and transformed his life. 
It's amazing when you read in verse 10, if you just whiz on to verse 10, Paul describes here to Timothy the nature of that gospel, but it's so personal. It speaks there in verse 10, but it is uh, speaking about the grace of Jesus. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This has been his experience on that Damascus road. The risen Lord Jesus has literally appeared to him and literally revealed to him right before his eyes, although he couldn't see because he was blinded, that Jesus wanted to save him and save others. And that he offers him, instead of judgments and punishments and death, for that is what he deserved for the way he had treated the church and treated Jesus. He deserved all of that but instead has received from Jesus life and salvation and immortality. And it is an act of pure grace. Paul knows he deserved none of it. That's why actually that greeting that we get in verse 2, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, it's very easy just to kind of go, oh, well, that's just Paul's way of saying, dear Timothy. But it isn't. That is his testimony That is the very heartbeat of his life. That in Jesus there is grace, mercy and peace. Grace. Getting what he doesn't deserve. Unconditional love. Unconditional forgiveness. Complete and utter acceptance. Mercy. Not getting what he does deserve. He deserved punishment, judgment and death for what he had done to Jesus. But instead Jesus takes his punishment, his death, uh, sorry, his judgment and his death. On himself. That is mercy. And then peace, that whatever Paul has done in the past, he is now utterly forgiven. And he can know that he can now live at total peace with God. God never says, oh yeah, but remember what you were like. Never. Never reminds him of the past. Instead, no guilt, no shame. Instead, acceptance and love. He knows Jesus could love him no more than he does at that moment and no less than he does at that moment. He experiences complete peace. That is the wonder of the gospel. That you can say at the end of your life that your conscience is clear no matter what you've done because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, is that how you feel? Do you know that in your own heart? Or when you look back, do you still feel guilt? Do you still carry guilt around, regrets? Do you still feel rather condemned, as if God can't quite accept that bit of me? Well, if that's true, you've not fully begun to stand grace and mercy and peace. You've not begun to understand the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel, it means we can have a clear conscience, completely. And if you don't yet know that, can I invite you, please, go and talk to the prayer team at the end. Get them to pray with you. You you might know that for certainty for yourself. But I think there's another aspect here to uh, that uh, clear conscience that he has. I think it's his clear conscience in ministry. God has called him to be an apostle. We read in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And Paul is able to look back and say honestly, I have sought to carry out the ministry you called me to, Jesus, to the very best of my ability. 
What I've been asked to do, I've sought to do. I've given it my all. It may not all have been success in human terms, but I've no regrets, no if-onlys. What a wonderful thing to get to the end of your life and know that you gave everything you could. Paul uses some amazing words. I don't know who's preaching on these, so I'm sorry, but I'm going to read them anyway. Chapter 4 and verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. They must be three of the best phrases anyone ever gets to say in their life, don't they, at the end of their life? I've fought the good fight. I've I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. That should be for each and every one of us, the sole object of our lives. The sole object of our lives is that in our family life, in our work life, our professional life, our retired life, in whatever life we have, that in everything we have fought the good fight. We've finished the race. We've kept the faith. And actually, Paul challenges Timothy, and I think challenges us. In 1 Timothy, I can't remember which chapter it is. I left it out. I can't remember which it is. He writes this, Fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have shipwrecked their faith, among them Hymenaeus and Alexander. You see, what Paul is saying to Timothy is it can go either way. I mean, at the minute, you're really going for it, Timothy, but I know that there is a danger that you could end up like all the others who, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of uh, persecution, in the midst of struggle, may be just like them. And a bit like Peter. Remember Peter with Jesus? The night he was arrested. Suddenly turn. Uh, I'm not going to stick with Jesus through this. I'm going to go in a different direction. He knows it could go either way. And he's saying, you either go full on for Jesus or you'll end up shipwrecked. It's one or the other. And you may say, well, hang on, surely there's a middle ground. Surely there's a, a kind of, I'm pretty much for Jesus, but let's not get too passionate about it. Well, do you know what my Bible reading this morning was? It's from Revelation 3, the, church, the letter of Jesus to the church in Laodicea, which says this. You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. And he says, I'm going to puke you up. That's literally what the Greek means. I will puke you up. You're neither one thing or the other. So middle ground doesn't work. Paul is saying to Timothy, go for it. Uh, Don't be like the others who have got distracted and gone off. Go for it. Make sure you have no regrets at the end of your life about how you sought to serve Jesus. And then having looked back on his own life, Paul looks back on Timothy's life, verse 4. Recording your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. I love it actually that he does it from a place of prayer. Back in verse 3, he says, Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I don't know about you, but if I was in a dungeon, a dark dungeon with just one hole at the top for light and air, and there were rats nibbling at my toes, and I was freezing cold, and I was expecting the sword to go through my neck any day now. That when I woke up in the morning, I woke up in the night quite a lot, ever since I hit 50, I don't know why, well, you all know why, those of you are over 50. <laughs> you know, I don't know about you what your first thoughts are when you wake up in the middle of the night. I know Fran, it's always stuff going through her head, or I've got stuff going through my head. But most of it's about me, what I'm worried about, what's going on in my life. But what does Paul wake up 
thinking about as the rats are nibbling his toes. He thinks about Timothy. How's it going for Timothy? I wonder what it's like in Ephesus. I wonder how Timothy's doing. Lord, Lord, be with Timothy. Look after Timothy. I find that extraordinary, don't you? That passion that he has for him and the care. And he recalls Timothy's tears. We don't know what these tears were. Do they refer back in Acts 20 when Paul left the Ephesian elders? and We're told there were great tears being shed. Or maybe other times that Timothy and Paul were together and as, as Timothy or Paul left one another, there would have been tears, maybe particularly on Timothy's side. You see, we know that Timothy was quite different to Paul. He was still very young. In 1 Timothy, we're told that he was not to let people look down on him because of his youth. In 2 Timothy, he's told to flee the evil desires of youth. He was still young. He had health problems. We know they had a dodgy tummy. We're told that uh, it's those classic words when Jesus tells Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Now, I don't know whether it's because the wine would help his dodgy tummy or he was just so anxiety-ridden that he just said, get this down, you mates. This will sort you out. I don't know what it was, but he was, had a dodgy disposition. And he was timid by nature. It's alluded to here. He's shy. He's timid. He's introverted. It's why when, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he tells them, see to it that you put Timothy at ease among you and let no one despise him. And I think Timothy is very different to Paul. Paul, much more mature, experienced. He's been through so much, outwardly so much tougher because of what he's been through. But here's the key. When Paul looked at Timothy, he didn't see the timidity. Well, he saw it. But it wasn't the timidity that bothered him. It it, it wasn't uh, his shyness or his introvertedness or his physical weakness that caught his eye. What he saw was the faith of Timothy. He saw a faith that was true and real and at work within him. He had seen it already in Timothy's grandmother and mother, who I'm sure had had a massive impact on Timothy. He'd seen how these two Jewish women who had become Christians, followers of Jesus, how their lives had shown the the work of the gospel within them, the transformation. And now he says, I'm persuaded I can see it in you, Timothy. I've watched. That when everyone else has done a runner, when everyone else has been shipwrecked, you've stuck with it. You've stuck with Jesus. You've kept leading. And yes, it's been tough. But because it's been tough, what I've really respected is you haven't given up. You've stuck in there, and I'm convinced God is at work in you. I can see it without a doubt, he's saying. And therefore, Paul believes in Timothy, despite what he's like. Paul absolutely believes in him. You see, that is the truth, that God uh, uses us always beyond our natural abilities and personality and disposition. If God is calling you, then he will call you beyond what you can naturally do. If God is calling you, he will always call you beyond what you can naturally do. If you say to yourself today, well, he can't be calling me. I'm too timid, shy. My health is not great. Can I tell you, you are likely to be the ideal candidate for God to call you. You are perfect for him if and only if. Your love for Jesus is real and strong. That is what matters. And that's what Paul sees in Timothy. I'm going to embarrass her, but that's what I saw in Katie when she turned up in my office two and whatever it was years ago. 
from another church saying, I feel God's calling me into leadership. She was shy, a bit timid, but I saw passion, a passion for Jesus and a passion to serve Jesus. And when you're looking for a new vicar, what are you going to look for? What are you going to look for? You need to know that there's someone who loves Jesus and loves the gospel. That's what you've got to look for. You see, uh, we won't be the same as each other. Uh, Megan is not the same as Katie. Ruth is not the same as Fran. And I'm not the same as whoever it is. And that is a good thing. Don't look for the same. Look for the work of Jesus in somebody. That is what matters. But then lastly, Paul looks forward and he gives a charge to Timothy. And he says this in verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Fan into flame the gift of God. But it brings up the question, what is this gift of God? I think almost certainly it does partly refer to the ministry that Timothy's been ordained to. Uh, Paul laid his hands on him and commissioned him for that ministry of being a leader in the church in Ephesus. I think it is that partly, but I agree with Gordon Fee. Not that he will bother whether I agree with him or not, as he's far greater than I am. But I think he's right. I get that sense. Gordon Fee very much sees a link between verse 6 and verse 7. We would much prefer the word spirits in verse 7 has a capital S rather than a small s. That probably it points us to the Holy Spirit. That actually the great gift of God is the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is urging Timothy to fan into flame his ministry, yes, but also through fanning into flame the gift of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to note something. That the way he's to fan this gift of the Holy Spirit is up is not through some spiritual experience. The danger is we often think that uh, fanning to the flame the gift of the Spirit means a kind of passiveness. I go and someone prays for me. I go into some big experience somewhere and somehow that fans into the flame the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is not what's said here. Because actually he is commanded to fan into flame the gift. It's a kind of an order. You need to do this, Timothy. This is not something God does to you. This is something you do. So what does it mean? I think it means this opposite of timidity that is spoken of here. That shrinking back. Fanning into flame is the means by which we say, okay, God, if you've called me, then I'm going to step up and I'm going to do it. If you really want me to do this, then I'm going to go for it. However timid, however shy, however inadequate I feel, however much my stomach is turning on its head, if that's not a strange thing to say, no matter how much is happening, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to put myself in a place where I need to rely on your spirits. You see, I know that must be true. Because what Timothy Paul says to Timothy is that you already have the Holy Spirit. He's already in you. He's been there right from the beginning. Since you became a Christian, Timothy, the Holy Spirit has dwelt within you. The spirit of power and love and self-discipline is already there. All those resources are already in you. But we now need to fan that into flame. And the way you're going to do that is not passively waiting for something to happen to you. It is by getting out and getting on with ministry. And when you get out and get on with ministry, suddenly you discover you have a new power. 
A power to enable you to do what otherwise you could never do alone. A new love, because if you do power without the Spirit of God, you will hurt people. Powerful people often hurt people. But spiritually powerful people love people. And they do so sacrificially. They use their power to love and serve others, not to somehow do something powerful to them. And you will have self-discipline. It is that sense of being able to keep going, stable, level-headedly, keep going firmly with Jesus. And he says to Timothy, you've already got this Holy Spirit. You've already got all the resources you need. The only problem is you're shrinking back. Rather, what you need to do is fan into flame the gift. Get out and get on with it. And remember, a whole load of people, the flame has gone out. Christian after Christian is named in this letter whose flame has gone out. And that's what Fran was saying earlier, the sadness of seeing young people come through and go out the other side whose flame has gone out. And it would be a tragedy if there were flames in here that went out in the next year, two years, five years, ten years. Our prayer is that every flame, even the embers that are here, would be fanned in flame and you would still be going so that at the end of your life you can look back and say, I've got no regrets. And some of us here maybe are uncomfortable today because you know that God is stirring you up. He is calling you to step out. During this interregnum, he's calling you to get stuck in and get involved. Not just to sit back and wait for someone else to come along. You are the people to whom this baton is passed on to right now. Maybe it's in this church. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's ordination. Maybe it's overseas mission. Maybe it's setting up a workplace prayer group. Maybe it's in your school or college making a new stand for Jesus in this new term. Now is the time to take that responsibility and step out. Risk it. Get out of your comfort zone and begin to use the gifts that God has given you. Use the resources that are already in you by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to end with these words of Oswald Chambers, who said this. God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of the reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen to use nobodies because their unusual dependence on him makes possible the unique display of his power and grace. And that he does use somebodies only when they choose to renounce dependence on natural abilities and resources. Are you ready for it? As I said to them this morning, this is not a rhetorical question. Are you ready for it? Are you going to step up? That was less people. Are you going to step up? Do you have the resources you need? Great, let's go for it.